I truly wanted to grow PSATs. So PSATs had remained pretty much what it was since the 50s and look for new opportunities. And it was through relationships that we were able to find and uh, to identify and uh, try to nurture some of those relationships. People that I worked with at the Commonwealth when I was at the old Department of Community Affairs. And I just had the belief that the future of any organization, particularly a nonprofit, is in keeping its members informed, good communication. And I thought that training was one way to be able to help equip our membership with the tools that they need to be effective in communicating with, with their residents. Keith Height spent a good part of his career at the Pennsylvania State Association of Township Supervisors. And when we met in the late 1990s, he had taken the helm as executive director. In this interview, we talk about some of the challenges he faced during his leadership, not only with helping the organization reimagine its future, but also with helping highly tenured staff make the shift to a new way of doing things. We also talk about the importance of relationships in professional life, the future of local government, and the important and highly rewarding work we did together in the training department. This was one of the first interviews we did inside the Pioneering Change community back in December of 2020. I know others will appreciate Keith's timeless and candid insights into shaping an organization to meet new challenges. Let's get started. Okay. Good morning, Keith Height. I'm so good to have you here. Thank you. And uh, I'm really excited to talk about just the span of years that we've known each other and some of the work we've done together. I want to introduce you. I know that we met sometime in the 90s. It precedes my computer files. <laughs> so when I went back into the computer files to see early notes of meeting with you, I, I couldn't even find this. So I think it was in the 90s. Did we have computers then? Yeah, I don't know. I'm sure there was something on my desk, but that resembled a computer. But you were working at PZs at the time. And now my recollection is you were transitioning into the role of executive director. So you might remember what year that was. Probably in the late 90s, 98. Okay. That sounds about right. So we're going to talk today primarily about the span of your time working as executive director at PZATS. And then I want to mention, and maybe we can touch on this as well, you continued to do work once you retired from PZATS with a number of other organizations that were related to lobbying and state and local governments. And so we can weave some of that into the conversation as well, wherever you see it might be appropriate. I'm going to start out today and just really focus on the thing that I think is most important and what I remember when I first met you. I was introduced to you, I think, because of one of your board members, Ed Goodhart, who was an early champion of mine, somebody who really made an effort to introduce me to municipal managers in the Lancaster area. And anyway, when we met, I remember you talking to me about 
how important relationship is and that you had noticed that I had a good relationship with a good heart. I seemed to understand the importance of sort of network and learning how to have not just work with people, but to have some relationship, professional relationship there that, that builds a trust. And what I realized about you is just how much you excel in this area. And I came to admire that in you. And I thought about that time period when you were transitioning and without going into particulars, it wasn't always easy to make that shift. I know that there was a big challenge in front of you. PSATS was taking on some, the new train, the, the training contracts I think were new, or at least some of those training contracts were new that were coming to PSATS through the state and you were going to be moving into a new building, just a lot of really big challenges. So. I'm going to let you talk a little bit about what do you think your relationship skills played a key role in that transition period? And what were some of the big challenges that you had to work through in order to make that transition happen at PSATS? Let me go back just a little bit, if I may, Nancy. Sure. I had been with PSATS 19 years when I became executive director. When I became director, and I'm guessing now, we had about 17 or 18 staff people. Of those, let's say 18 staff people, seven of them were more tenured than I was at 19 years. And so there was a culture that was, was very much entrenched uh, at PSATS. And like uh, PSATS is a nonprofit organization. It relies primarily on its dues, its magazine revenues and its annual convention. And in each of those individually and collectively, growth is a very difficult uh, thing for a nonprofit such as PSATS. First of all, the membership, we enjoyed 100% membership, which was uh, on one side is, is really admirable. On the other side, doesn't allow too much room for growth with, within the, the core value of the organization. Convention was the same way, we were the largest Pennsylvania-based convention and growth was in many ways limited or impeded by being able to find a facility that could accommodate us. And if you'll recall, when, we, when I left, we had done 20 some odd years at Hershey, but when we did Hershey, we also used about 20 satellite hotels in the Hershey area beyond the lodge. The magazine was intended primarily for our members. So again, growth was nominal. So we faced a bit of a crossroads about where PSATS was headed, where it wanted to go. I truly wanted to grow PSATS. PSATS had remained pretty much what it was since the 50s and looked for new opportunities. And it was through relationships that we were able to find and uh, to identify and try to nurture some of those relationships. People that I worked with at the Commonwealth when I was at the old Department of Community Affairs. And I just had the belief that the future of any organization, particularly a nonprofit, is in keeping its members informed, good communication. And I thought that training was one way to be able to help equip our membership with the tools that they need to be effective in communicating with, with their residents. More people live in townships than any other type of uh, local government in Pennsylvania. And that includes the cities, which includes Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. There are more people living in townships. And so the, the township supervisor, for the most part, 
is a volunteer. You know, they get something. I don't know where it is now, but when I retired, they were somewhere in the vicinity of $3,600 a year for being an elected official. But we wanted to provide them with the tools and knew some people that were very helpful and they were interested in learning about how we could do the training together as a partnership. And to me, a partnership is a relationship. There's no other way to describe it. And so we started off very modestly. And I think our first training contract brought to PSAT somewhere in the vicinity of, of $200,000 annually. Now, in order to launch that new partnership and to take PSATs in a different direction, I take you back to the staff that we have and how highly tenured it was. All of those folks were in one way or another set in their own little silo, yeah. whether it was communication, legislation, insurance, whatever it may be. And now we're asking them to try to look outside the box while doing their same, they're, they're fulfilling their same responsibilities. And as a result, we ended up having to grow the association on the personnel side. When I left PSATS, we had taken that organization from 17 or 18 staff to 54 staff. And it was primarily the result of the training contracts. When I left, I think that our annual contracts were, were a little bit over $7 million a year. Now, we were a nonprofit, so we can't be in the business of trying to make money. But we were able to use what we did on the training side of things to help expand PSAT's services. Well, we were training over 10,000 local officials a year when I left PSAT's. And so all of a sudden, you've increased your notoriety. You've increased your opportunity for new and improved relationships. And so I think that's, that was the mission from the get-go. But I guess if I had to summarize the, the long, drawn-out way to get to your question, but I think to, to circle back to that, what was the, the biggest challenge and, and how do relationships help? Culture is a very difficult thing to overcome. And that was our greatest challenge. And uh, we brought in some people who I thought were really good. A lot of them, some of them were from uh, past relationships that, that, that I had. But nonetheless, it just continued to grow all because of relationships. Yeah. When you had a way of making it look easy, but because <laughs> you and I had an opportunity to talk quite a bit, I knew that each individual in your organization had their strengths and then their limitations. And, and I watched you walk that path of saying, these are all great services. We're doing a great job, but we got to go one step further. And uh, so it was really, in my view, my observation, your leadership was about setting challenges in front of them, being able to articulate, this is where we need to go and always putting that there, not dwelling on what's not happening, but really trying to focus on the possibilities. Maybe you could say more about that or how you, I know it's sometimes hard to know when you're the one who is doing the leading, but maybe you could respond to some of that. Another way to describe a relationship is, is team effort. And I think that was a, a, what we were trying to do at PSATS was try to bring together the, uh, the staff that was on hand and, and also the new staff. To, to come together, a uh, collaborative effort to be able to fulfill not only PSAT's mission, but also our responsibility to the contracts. Mm -hmm. Some of the challenges were within PSAT's framework, 
Why are we doing the contracts? This isn't what we do. We do legislation. We do communications. We do insurance. Yes, we do. But if we want to grow, if we want to survive, we're going to have to try to find new opportunities. So you have to have buy-in from everybody and you have to forge that, that team initiative. And up until this point, we really didn't have, over the years, didn't have any formal training of the staff outside of their individual qualifications. I'm talking about coming together as a team and in a cohesive kind of way. And that's what really brought you to the table in conversation with, with Goodhart uh, and another one of your heroes, George Marcinko. Oh, yes. And I didn't being know. able to understand what you had done in their individual townships. And if you recall, one of our first conversations was, uh, you know, what, what you've done in the township, that's all well and good, but now we're going to talk about larger scale. And so you had to tailor or structure a program that was going to try to embody every different thing that we were involved with at PSACs and bring us all together uh, in a team. We had no, I forget what the terms that we used, but we didn't have any type of training where we brought the staff together to, to analyze themselves, to analyze each other and determine how best to go forward. You provided that to us. Mm-hmm. When we began to work together, I just recalled a very traditional way to handle that situation would be for the leader or manager, which you had some manager level people with the uh, training division, would be to figure out the problem and tell everybody what they should do to fix it. But you didn't do that. You, you brought me in and I worked with the team really pulling apart all the different processes. And also we worked with each individual to talk about their areas, like what they brought to the team and what they felt they needed to work on. And then we set some goals around that. And I always think of the work that I do as what comes out of it is just the process, as you just said, getting them to think about it and to really analyze how they work together and also getting feedback. And you participated in the feedback. I gave them feedback. They got feedback from each other. I do, again, think of that as a theme in my work, which is creating everyday learning experiences, which helps to move the organization forward. I think in the end, you brought in an excellent training director, and I'm sure she took the the team in, in new directions and did things in new ways. But I still think you built muscle. The process that we went through working together built muscle and really pulled out where the strength was mm-hmm. on the team and how to work together. And I think that's a, a key point that how to bring the team together. I think each of us, every member of the PSAT staff, had to best understand what it was we brought to the table mm-hmm. and, and how we could bring that together. I thought a lot back then that the job that, that I had the responsibility more than anything else was to try to calm the waters and help help break down the individuality in favor of, of a team effort. And you're right, the person that we brought on for training, I had not worked with her specifically, but I knew of her work yeah. and her communication skills, at least in my estimation, were second to none. And you know, I could have frank and candid conversations about what we wanted to do, how we wanted to get there. But at the end of the day, looking to, to her and also to you through the work that you did um, for the leadership and to, to try to, to get her done, as they say. 
Yes. And I, I mentioned this in our sort of pre-interview notes that it's very unusual for a client to really identify work around process, but you did right away. It was, it was about the team. It was about bringing them together, but I don't know if you recall this, but you had it in your mind that these pro the, the business processes could, could be improved. Mm -hmm. And you really set that challenge before them. I like the specificity of that. It's not fuzzy. It's you got to get along as a team, but you also have to really understand how what you do impacts the other person and how your work is interconnected. And uh, I thought that was a, a really great opportunity for me to have a client be so attuned to the importance of process in, in looking at performance. Oftentimes we get so stuck on the people. <laughs> if that person could just do X, Y, Z, instead of really looking at the process and saying, this process doesn't work. It, it, it's not, it doesn't fit in the overall, what the results that you're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I ever told you the story. You were, did some work at PSETS at, uh, on two different occasions. Mm -hmm. And the second time when, when you really worked more directly with the training staff, you're always, you're always struggling to try to break down this, the silos. And it's just, it, when you have a highly tenured staff and, and for a large extent, I, as I said earlier, seven had more seniority there than I did, it's set in our ways and not receptive to change. But I had three directors that one was highly tenured one medium and then the other one was relatively new that more often than not the dispute among the three of them just creates so much angst not only for me but within their individual departments and i, I repeated meetings and i had a meeting with them one day and i said to them it was they could get very hostile and i said to them there are three plus me and i said when this is all over today's meeting we have the prospect that only three of us are going to be employed by PSATs when the meeting is over. Now, do you want to decide who those three are going to be? But before you do, one of them is going to be me. So you look at yourselves and decide. And it's through some cold water on some of their positions. And I think that it, it had an impact on them. But and the person that was working with me at the time would reaffirm this. When that meeting was over, I got up, I went over to my office, and I called Nancy Hess. And I said... We need to do this. We need to do it with the training staff because all three of the directors in one way or another networked with each other and, and had responsibility, direct responsibility for the contracts. So whether it was, it was the management of it, whether it was the support of it, didn't matter. We need yeah. to bring those people together. One of the things that I, which I felt while working with you is that there was an urgency there. And I think that was one of the messaging was around this is an option we, we have to make this work we have very specific goals that we have to achieve as an organization and so that helped drive the performance and i thought that was again as a leader you have to really define that for them because as you said the silos is i'm just going to go in and do my job this is my i'm going to excel in my area and they did but getting them to think across to the, the larger organization. I think by, with that in mind, when, when you look at the staff, 
And I asked this question numerous times when we would have conflict, especially with the administration of the contracts among the other divisions within the association. Tell me why not? Why shouldn't we be doing the contracts? If we don't want to grow, if we want to remain stagnant and things will, and we won't be able to do the things we'd like to do, especially in the area of staff salaries. Mm-hmm. If you want to grow within yourself, we need to come together. And it was you know, just trying to, to calm the waters. And it really became a question of working together as a team. That, that really wasn't part. The only time at Peace Sense that the staff came together and, and set aside their individual responsibilities, it, it was at best a six out of 10 was the convention. Yes. And I want to talk about that. We each had, we each had our own responsibilities within the convention, but there was still the siloing within that. Your convention is just, it was just magnificent. It was just, it was a flawless execution. And I think everybody's mind, you did so many things well there. So it again, looked seamless. But, and my perception was that you gave people a lot of latitude. In other words, there was so much preparation that once the thing launched, everybody had their piece that they had to perform in. And the only thing I wanted in return, I wanted to know what was going on. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to walk into that convention and not know whether all the speakers were lined up, whether the workshops were in place. That's your responsibility. It's not mine. I'm not going to do your job per se, but you got to keep me informed as to, to what's going on. Mm. We, for example, in the workshops, we used to run maybe 12 to 15 workshops a year at the convention. When I left, we were doing in excess of 100 seminars in those three days, and the staff made all that possible. Yeah, it was really something. And you say this uh, with a great deal of pride, there aren't too many state-based organizations that can say that they had two presidents and a vice president of the United States as their guest speaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember the helicopter coming in and <laughs> yeah. it was quite exciting. I, I, can't, I can't leave our conversation about relationships without asking you what you think about etiquette today in the business world versus the etiquette that I'm sure were, was the cornerstone for you and for me in terms of our professional arc. We really learned how to reach out and make contact, not just through email, but face-to-face. It was a large part of our career. That has really changed today. And I wonder, not just before, because of the pandemic, but just because of our phones and just the way we work. And I don't know if you, when you look at young professionals, if you would give them any advice about relationship, because frankly, I think younger professionals, they struggle a little bit in this area with relationship for various. You better be prepared to push the, uh, the cancel button. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think it's in the business world, to be honest with you, Nancy. I think it's in, it's fully in society and there is no civility in, in our society anymore. It does not matter what point you want to bring up, whether it's the pandemic, uh, whether it's the politics, it does not matter. We have lost civility in this country. And I think that's sad. I, I think that's it's really sad. The way we communicate, I think about 
in organizations where people are connecting maybe through their platforms. I don't know if you're familiar with Slack or some of the platforms that are being used inside organizations now. It's like texting almost. Yes. But you wonder if just those forms of communication don't lend themselves. When we're in relationship, you and I know we don't agree on a lot of different levels, but we know where we do have common ground and, and we're very firm in that in our relationship. And I don't know if that's true. And we push back from our desk and we go down the hall to see our, our colleague to talk about an issue. We don't email, we don't use social media. I think that, that today's younger people or young people, there's because of, of all the social media, I think there's a sense of entitlement that uh, may get in the way of building lasting relationships. And, and it's, it, we're not entitled to relationships. We have to make relationships work. We have to grow them. But what is most important is that we have to maintain them. Mm -hmm. And I think that with all the social media tools today, that gets lost. Email, texting, social media, it's too convenient. It has a purpose. I don't want to uh, understate that. It has a very important person, um, point in our lives or purpose in our lives. But I think we've, we may have abused it a little bit. Everything has sped up over the years. So I wonder, like when I think about the early days in my consulting work, it was nothing to get in the car and drive two hours and meet with somebody and have face-to-face -face meeting and then drive home. It today, you wonder that that's four hours of, of not <laughs> getting work done. Right, right. We've just changed the context of our, our work or the expectations around work. And well, I still think one of the things we did at PSATs among four or five staff people, we referred to them as county conventions. Every county in the state has its own association of township officials, and they have an annual meeting. And one of four of us would attend each of those meetings. We attended all the meetings uh, every year. But even when I was working there to to go out to a county convention, whether it was overnight or done in the evening or during the day, took away from your work. But you were able to balance that out when you returned to the office. But I think today I look at that and people see that more as an inconvenience, more of a, of a hardship to go out in the road like that and do those kinds of things. To me, it was very important to maintain our relationship with our membership. Yeah, yeah. And I'm still, as a result of that, I'm still in contact with a, a lot of township officials across the state just to say, hello, how are you? And it's just, that's important to me. In the overall scheme of things, those relationships cannot benefit myself or the person at the other end any way personally, other than it's a good feeling to retain that relationship. Mm. I love working with people. The one thing that has really impacted me personally with this pandemic is the isolation. I don't do well with that. Mm -hmm. People and relationships, relationships are important to me. Something that happened to me just recently, I had somebody reach out to me to do a proposal who I'd never met before. And this person's a few hours away. But even if they were close, I don't know if I would have made the drive because of the pandemic. But this person knew about my reputation. I did the proposal, but I have new proposal software, new technology. 
And when I executed the proposal, it didn't work the way it was supposed to work. Mm. And the person wrote me with some offense because the page that came up when she opened the proposal was like, sign here. It was oh, like gosh. a sign here page. It's just, oh, you're not the only person that, <laughs> you know, on this project. Yeah. I lost sleep over it. I, I was thinking this was the results of me relying too much on the technology as opposed to the relationship. Even if I would have called her and said, the proposal's coming and this is what I'm thinking. I hope it means I didn't do that. I emailed, I used the platform. That won't happen again. I learned my lesson, but it, it was a, it was a blip in, uh, and I'm not sure if I got the project or not, but I'm just assuming, <laughs> I'm just assuming that she, she, she really didn't like that first contact with the, through the technology and I knew better and I, but I think it's the, it's the result of our, I mean, for me, maybe just getting a little bit too familiar with technology ways of relating as opposed to just reaching out, which is part of what I'm doing with these member introductions to the community is just take the time to really talk to people. And well, there's, there's another factor in all of this, and that is that our young people today uh, are so much more adept at the the computer sciences and being able to take advantage of the technology. What I look at in using a, a computer, for example, is, is on a scale of one to 10, about a point one compared to what people take for granted when they're at the 10 level and being able to do what they do today. My position had always been when you use that new software for your proposal, you adapted to the software. The software did not adapt to you. And, and so as a result, there to borrow your word, there was a blip in the, in the process. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, uh, after I retired, one of the people who I had a great deal of faith and respect for took another position with another organization and reached out to me this maybe a year, two years after I left and uh, talked about the contracts and how we were able to leverage them and what did we do? How did we do it? Et cetera, et cetera. And in the process, I, I tried to encourage this person to go after because I thought it was a good fit for what they were doing and it would help grow the organization. And I'm listening to your words. I was a bit surprised because a, a bit of deja vu of the response was, well, if we get it, I don't know if I want to travel to that part of the state three or four times a year, or what's it going to do to the work I'm doing now? You grow with that. You don't put a hand out and say, no, we're not going to do it because of that try to find the opportunity and, and nurture it and grow with it. Yeah, I think you're right that we have to be able to understand core, yeah. our business and what it is that makes that business grow and not be afraid to go towards it, even if that means altering the way we work. But I, I want to just, there was one other thing here. Oh, I guess on that point, I just want to add that the work around processes that we talked about a little earlier, I think is the way organizations can prevent technology from running the show. In other words, if you do the process work first, you get the technology application. And when the consultants come in and say, what are your processes? You can talk about them. Like you, ha you're, you have a visual 
and a, a way to articulate your work processes, as opposed to them saying, oh, here's a template that we you know, have used in other organizations, and then you adapt to their processes, which happens so often. And that's when staff get very frustrated. So I think that was another point on the. Back in the day, and I'm going back into the eighties, these have small staff and we had three, forgive the term, secretaries that provided all of our secretarial support. And I had a crazy idea that we didn't have a computer in the building, that we should bring in the computers, bring in word processing. When we did that for those three secretaries, I couldn't have gotten elected dog catcher. <laughs> the, the resistance was just incredible. They didn't want any part of it. And now I look back on those days and, and where the, where those very staff, how they ended up with, at PSATs, they would have killed if you took the computer away from them. Yeah. You have to grow with, with the technology. Don't let the technology grow. You've got to grow with it. Yeah. Well, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about local government now, because when I work with municipal uh, government, I so often hear from the manager, people are afraid to grow with the technology, see this need to, now that the assistants have their computers, I know what's in my computer. I know the way I do the work process and it's really difficult to get them again to, to ship. So thinking about local government and the, particularly with our challenges, we need to be lean. We need to be innovative. In my opinion, I'm sure you feel the same way. Do you have any thoughts about the future of local government and anything that you think, any particular area of focus that you think is important going forward for local government? Well, I think that local government must, must look to its constituency and its constituency are residents of all walks of life. And so you don't, you don't really find that common thread among them, but I think that what we're seeing today is an insatiable appetite for our government to be more transparent. And I think that's a good thing. And I think that's what will lead local government in, into the, into the next stage. For example, We've all heard in the past year or so how difficult it is for police officers today. Now, granted, you're hearing more out of the city of Philadelphia than you are out of Derry Township, uh, but that's not to say it's not coming. And it, more often than not, it only takes one issue to really get the people involved, if that's a good word, to, uh, to challenge their local government. So I think in the case of, of, of that, there's probably, at least in my mind, and I could be too naive, but there's probably no better opportunity today for local government and folks like you to jump into the local government spectrum and, and make a difference is in trying to deliver some type of training that, that will help the police regain the dignity and the respect of their office, wrong or indifferent. That's been challenged. That's all part of this loss of civility. And I think that something has got to be done. We've got to turn the corner on this. And we saw across the, the nation where mayors have, have reacted to some of the demonstrations by saying, okay, we're not going to send police down into that area of the city. 
and the protesters devastated it. They just absolutely trashed it. That's not the way to, in my mind, that's not the way to address it. What you've got to do is to, is to bring the leadership and bring the police together. There is not a line in the sand between police departments and elected officials. You've got to come together and, and try to become accountable for improving the, the for countering the, the skepticism that, that really exists today about our public safety. There's an opportunity there. There's a tremendous opportunity. Some folks are going to have to work outside the box, but we can't become complacent and we have to, above all else, we have to know our role and we have to know how we can bring that together to serve each other. I think that's just one example in local government, but local government has, and rightfully so, local government has enjoyed uh, a higher approval rating, if you will, than their counterparts in Washington and Harrisburg. And I think that's well-documented because local government officials, they're not looking for the fame and glory, and certainly there's no money in it. They're just going out there and, and doing their jobs to serve their, their community because they are part of that community. They came from that community. It's, you take somebody that's in, been in Washington 20, 25 years, four years, they've lost touch with the people back home. The people back home, in, in all honesty, only matter every four years. Uh, it's just, I, I wondered, I, I watched and, and read everything I could on the incredible debate over the next level of, of trying to bring some meaningful relief and support for the people that what the legislators were doing in Washington. Sad. Yeah. It's sad. Not one of those people, 453 people and probably all the staff associated with them have any idea what's going on in the street. Uh, they're, they're removed from it. Yeah. And so often I hear this, people come into their local government office and they're not even clear on the difference between what happened the local level, what happens at the state level or the federal level. And so you, local government is, it's like the main hub for the community in terms of being able to talk about and find out things that matter to them, that are most important to them. And it's there, it's, it's in front of them, right in front of them. I happen to believe, and I, I know this is going to sound um, a, a, a bit uh, out of character, but I happen to believe that local government impacts our daily lives. Oh yeah. More than the federal or state government. Yeah. Yeah. Until the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. And I've always felt that way. I've always felt that if people understood just how much work takes place at the local level, just in terms of bringing together services that impact our life. I think that what, what we really need to do are to get those young people that you talked about earlier to get them more engaged in the affairs of local government. Too often, especially in the more rural communities, the township officials, borough council members, they're highly tenured. And the people who come on today, uh, especially we see it in school boards, when they come on today, they've got an agenda. Yeah. And the agenda is not necessarily serving the public. We see that all the time in, in Washington and Harrisburg, but I think that the young people need to get more engaged, more familiar with yeah. local government, what it can do. And if those young people can bring their expertise, their skill sets, their talents to, to local government. There is a lot that the, I think that people 
are not familiar with the way local government works. And it's been a huge challenge. When I think about the future of local government, I do think about more of a, a dialogue or working together. And I think bringing young people into the process is a great way to get there. Yeah. And I think uh, anyone that's moving into a new area would it would do well to go to a couple public meetings. <laughs> it's good to know if you've got a board that's holding together, that are able to talk about civility. How do they conduct their meetings? I, I chose uh, Dairy Township primarily because I really value you know the walking paths and its location. There's a number of things specifically about this area that I chose it for. But I can tell you from working in a couple of municipalities, I would never move to those municipalities just because of their history of not being able to work together. And that's an important, it has to impact the ability of that municipality to flourish. I, I agree. Washington and Harrisburg are based on two political two party political system. That same system uh, exists in local government, but it does not prevail in local government. Uh, I don't think, at least in, in my experiences, especially among the boards of supervisors, you don't see an R and a D split among the board. You see maybe a, a, a growth versus a non-growth uh, split kind of thing, but it's a different animal and uh, it requires a, a different way to approach and treat it. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. But in the case of it, that you started with this particular plan, I was working for a loving firm in Harrisburg after I retired from PSATS, very influential firm with contacts all across the state. And I, I naively believe that that's what really brought me to the table over there because the contacts I had, not only in the legislature and the administration, but also with the, the local government officials. But uh, a friend who at the time was a state senator had a uh, constituent who was having difficulty getting a land development plan approved by a township. And so I called and asked if I could help. And the first thing I did was call the township manager, who I happened to know personally. And we talked about it. And so it turns out the, the developer, the person that, was, that had called me, had not done A, B, C, and D. And so I was able to go back to the person. I said, look, there's no problem with what you're proposing here. It's just that the township is bound by state law to do certain things in order to do that, you've got to provide A, B, C, and D. Well, I didn't know that. And so he did that. And at the next month's meeting, the plan was approved. Just a basic lack of understanding of the process. Township government, state or local government can only do what state law allows them to do. When I just, when I started a piece that's many years ago, the, uh, the municipal manager, more often than not, was a township secretary. They decided to yeah. change the title, make, a, make that person manager. I think it has evolved. There are some and have been some absolutely phenomenal people out there serving as municipal manager, people that I was just constantly in awe of with what they brought to the table. I will say this, that probably the greatest enemy of the municipal manager is losing sight of your role within the local government. As a manager, you are there to manage. You are not there as a policymaker. And, and the longer they would become tenured, they would move more into policymaker. And the moment you do that, you've lost your board of supervisors or the, or the elected body. And so that's a challenge for each of them. 
but yeah, understanding the difference of the roles that it, it's yeah. for the boards as well. Sometimes they don't understand that they're not the manager, but yeah, I, I think too, uh, those who leave college, let's say you have an engineering degree or you have uh, an IT degree or there's a number of degrees that would lend yeah. themselves. You have a planning degree. Yeah, planning degree. You could go into your master's work if you are able to go on and get that sort of extra layer, even if you do it while you work. They would make great municipal managers. And these days, because the market's so tight, the money's not bad if you have a professional professional credentials. On- and if you have a board that understands the importance of, of bringing in, it's the old adage, you get what you pay for. And if you bring in, at a, at a good level, person to be the manager, they're going to stay. They're going to help to to grow that community. And you know, we talk about relationships for, from the outset. And you know, the better the spe- the staff, the better the leaders or the leadership. And it's a relationship between the two. They serve one another. We lose that too often. One of the things that that I wanted to ask you was on this what I call the vision thing. And this is why you and I always have such great conversations. I think we both like to talk about the big picture and the possibilities and you're not, a, you're not afraid to dare to uh, think big. Was this something that you think was always with you? Do, you? do you, when you go back and think about your, the arc of your career that uh, you always were looking at the possibilities and what's it? I don't know. It's, that's, that's a great question. I, I don't know that I can answer it. I, I just, I, I think that's just a, a way of life for me is trying to find the opportunity in, in whatever I'm doing or whatever I'm involved with. Do not have a great deal of time for adversity. I'm not afraid of, of, of entering into, I don't want to say an argument per se, but I won't give up making my thoughts known. But to the point that it becomes hostile, I don't have time for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in everything that you're handed, no matter what the challenge, you got to find the opportunity. Yeah. Because if you don't and you become complacent, then all of that dictates your life. Mm-hmm. As you moved through your career, I am sure given the nature of politics, that you have encountered a lot of this kind of sort of friction where you've had to, I'm going to say rise above it, just rethink it or reframe it in a way that uh, you can go forward. Otherwise, it's just somebody wants to block you because there's not everybody likes people who have big, big ideas, so to speak, willing to go after. Sure. Sure. But you can't do it alone. No. You, you've got to have the, the people with you to buy into it. And if it's a crazy idea, and I'm, I guess I'm, I had quite a few of those mm. and, and you can't get the buy-in, then you move on. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, uh, you don't take it personally, just move on to the next opportunity. I think that being able to manage that is, it's, it's just a natural kind of thing. I've had conflict over the years with boards, with staff. And I think at the end of the day, it's how you manage that. I've had conflicts with board members over the years that I know I could have easily. And and the other person involved 
could have easily just said, hey, it's more than we're going to agree to disagree. I don't even want to talk to you anymore. I don't want to see you again. I don't want that to happen. Mm. Life, is, life is far too short for, for that kind of thing to happen. Mm. I, I truly believe that. I have a, a personal situation over two years ago that taught me how right I am in saying that you cannot allow that to happen. Um, life's Life's too short. Yeah. But I've had conflicts with the board over the years. And uh, at peace, that's when it is possible for a board member to uh, to serve upwards of 20 years on the PSATS board if they know how to how to to do it and they become highly tenured but more importantly and more dangerously um, they they and the staff establish constituencies with one another and too often those constituencies are, are used to promote the interest or the position of individual staff as opposed to the team uh, it, it ain't good. I think that there's got to be that line between the leadership, uh, the, the board leadership and the staff level. Not to say you shouldn't be res- respectful, not to say you shouldn't be friendly, but to say that you're friends and to act like that, that's not healthy. Uh, it got to the point for me one time that I had to move on a staff person and that staff person had, uh, two members of the 12-member board was very close to. And as soon as the, the, the change was made, went to those two board members to try to, to have the decision overturned. And it was not a, an enjoyable board meeting for me, but we got through it because anything in personnel management, the eventual key to success is a three tenants document. And we did have everything documented. And uh, so it worked out, but the failure of being able of those two board members to be able to turn things resulted in a former staff member, a current staff member, and those two board members attempting to overthrow the election at the next convention because they wanted to, to try to, to turn things. And that was a, a, a dismal failure. We had word it was going to happen and chose not to deal with it as an opposing voice uh, but there's two sort two sides to every story we just we moved forward to the convention talked about what we needed to do what the convention was there for what the the membership was there for and on the last day or next to last day when the election came up it really wasn't an election yeah. and that was probably a piece that's that was probably the most difficult challenge that i had to face but, or that I did encounter, but through it all, we just kept doing what we do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there are different leadership styles for different yeah. times. And yeah. me that I don't know what metaphor you would use for your leadership time, but it was truly mm-hmm. a steering of a ship. And if you are steering a ship with lots of resources and assets, you can't afford to be wishy-washy. You can't afford to be evasive. And so you have to also have that tough skin. Uh, we're going to criticize the way you're doing it or you're steering too heavy and you should listen to other voices. And so you were always having to balance that out. But it might be in another executive director role, it's more important to be maybe a little more under the radar. I've known some executive directors that have a, such a quiet way about them, but they know how to work behind the scenes. It depends on 
it depends on where you're at. You definitely had to articulate a vision. You had to keep putting that vision in front of people because you were going through such transition and growth. And so when that happened, that was a, that was unfortunate unfurling because it impacted people inside the organization. It wasn't a question. It was other very important people that got pulled in. You know what? It was little more than where we started this conversation. I think this might be a good time to wrap it up. We've been talking here for, for a while and I know we didn't hit every single thing here. Is there anything in our, that, that I might've missed that you want to make sure we pull in here? I'm glad that we, we were able to talk a little bit about conflict with the board because I think that's yeah. an important element of such an important part of your. Any manager is going to face that at one time or another. I don't care how, how good you are, how poor you are in your job. It's inevitable. Mm-hmm. You look at the, at the boards, you look at the PSATS board, the only common thread uh, among the PSATS board is that they are all township supervisors. Yet you're looking at a professional staff that brings a myriad of skill sets, talents to the table. And it's trying to get a, a, a leadership board that does not have, does not necessarily have an understanding of what it is you're doing because of the diversity of your professional skill sets. And I'm not talking about the, the leader, I'm talking about the, the staff as a whole. And so it does become the responsibility in this case of, of the director or of a municipal manager to help the board understand why it's important. One of the, one of the first things, and yeah. I remember this a bit of a story, we had a board member a wonderful board member from the western part of the state, a very rural township. This is going back into the early 80s, a very rural township, and uh, she was secretary of the township. And her first meeting of what we called the salary board at, at PSATS, and she saw the salaries of the staff. And she was just outraged because I think at the time she was making less than $5,000 a year as a township secretary. And she just could not comprehend that. And she needed to take that information back home, needed to spread the word, look what these people at PSATs are earning. And I sat down with her after, after all this happened. And I said, look, we've got to be competitive in the Harrisburg marketplace. We've got to be, have the staff that's going to do what you expect us to do. And so it's not what the salary, the prevailing salary might be in Washington County. It's what it is in the state capital. And we looked at all of that. And after a little bit of encouragement, finally came to grips with it. And in future years, was one of the greatest advocates for having and compensating a truly professional staff. That's a great story. That's a great story. Yeah. Yeah. You were in a way uh, commissioned to, to go forth with this very big goal. I think of it again, like an explore in some respects. And so the board is reading and scanning the environment and being able to help message and communicate, but you're, you had to take care of those particular, the execution of the mission. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That's, that is it in, in, in summary and through it all, you had to be a, be a whole lot of things. Yeah. It's sometimes leadership meant being a parent. Sometimes leadership meant little more than a colleague. I just, and with your board, you have to respect them. doesn't matter what you think of them individually or privately. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the respect that the board as a director, as an officer of the association warrants. Mm-hmm. 
it, it isn't about Nancy Hess as president of PSATS. It's about the office of president and, and the respect that you have to have for that. Mm. The members have elected you. Mm. My job to work with you. But one of the things about you, and this sort of ties into this, my last question, but you were in many respects, the face of PZATS, but when you took time off, you disappeared. Oh yeah. And so part of your, I don't know if you can call it a work-life balance, but you worked very hard. And when you took time off, people couldn't get in touch with you. You were very far away. Yeah. No email, no phones. But that was uh, aside from my work. That was a passion of mine. And I'm going to just, it, I love going hunting out west. I love being in, in places that uh, I've never seen before. Yeah. So that's my reprieve. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little interesting aspect of your personality. That uh, Especially, yeah, especially today when, when hunting doesn't enjoy the, the popularity it once did. But I don't have many left. I probably have, I'm going to, if we come out of the pandemic, I hope to go to the Yukon in September. And then in 22, I've been making plans. My son, who does not relish the hunt as I do, I've worked out an arrangement. We're going to go out west for one last trip, the good Lord willing. And I'm, I'm still here, just an easy trip. But it's been a wonderful ride. You think the Northwest or? Pardon me? The Northwest, are you thinking? Probably Wyoming. Wyoming. Yeah. But this year to the Yukon, I'm really looking forward to that. I've I've made two similar trips like this, and they I thought I did my homework, but they've both been, uh, they've been a disaster, to be honest with you. So I'm optimistic about this year. The border's been closed. I don't know when it's going to open, and you can't even, you can't even book a flight now into Canada. Yeah. It's but, good to dream. I'm glad. It is. But I have, I have a room that's got some of the, the things from all the hunts over the years. And I sit in there and, and I remember each and every time who I was with, the things that we did. And then, of course, I, I kept a diary of, of each outing. So. That's great. Very inspiring and in your love of nature. And although I don't share your passion for the hunt, I certainly can really appreciate that you do it full tilt. <laughs> you don't do it. In any mediocre way, you go in full tilt. No, I'm saying <laughs> one of my favorite projects is with you. I like to ship that we've maintained over the years. I think that's the theme of this interview, and you've certainly demonstrated that in my life. So I've appreciated it. Thank you. Likewise. Likewise. Yeah. Okay. We'll see you later. All right.